Welcome back to the Get Loved Up podcast, your number one resource for inspiration and motivation to live your purpose, make healthy living a priority, and thrive doing what you love. I'm your host, Koya Webb, a small town girl who chased her dreams and caught them, a former track and field athlete who healed using spirituality and yoga, and an entrepreneur who didn't let sexual assault racism, and insecurities dim her light. And now it's your turn to allow these episodes with some of the top voices in spirituality, wellness, and entrepreneurship to inspire you to thrive. Let's get loved up together. Dr. Lisa Obey Austin is a licensed psychologist and executive coach with a focus on career advancement, leadership development, and job transitions. She is a co-founder and partner of Dynamic Transition Psychological Consulting, a career and executive coaching consultancy where she works mostly with high potential managers and executives. Dr. Lisa, hello. Hi, Hi Claire. how are you? I am incredible. Like it's so it's so good to get to meet you. I I always like to want to say in person, but it's really just virtually on Zoom. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You are doing so much in the world, especially when it comes to imposter syndrome. So I cannot wait to kind of just dive into your world because it's something that a lot of people are struggling with right now. Yeah. Uh, the research shows about 70% of people have experienced imposter syndrome. So it's pretty significant. Yeah. Oh, so let's kind of start with what made you passionate about this topic specifically. Is it just the ridiculously high numbers or something more personal? Yeah, it's something more personal, which is that I, I've dealt with imposter syndrome pretty profoundly throughout my educational career, but also throughout my professional career. And I think it had reached a height actually after I had finished my PhD and, you know, I think oftentimes people think, Oh, you have the credentials and you feel like you're on top of the world and you can conquer anything. And it was probably the most insecure period of my life. And I really felt um, like I didn't deserve it. Like I shouldn't be out there. And actually had this recurring sort of nightmare that they were going to come and take it away. Um, And I got myself in a very toxic job, which was very common for me with imposter syndrome because I just felt like I should take whatever was given to me and and was was out there and not necessarily really think about what I wanted for myself and had a really toxic boss. And it was really very, very painful. And I just decided, you know, after a really traumatic experience with him that I was going to really put this imposter syndrome in its place and really just like find my own my own kind of confidence and competence and trust myself, but it took a lot of work. And I think the book is really, uh, and the, the interest in the topic, the book is really about sort of freeing as many people as I possibly can from the experience of imposter syndrome, because I knew, know how to have a stranglehold on me and I know what it can do to others. And so that's really what the book was about. Yes. And I love the part in the book where you really talked about a little bit about where it, stems from. So do you resonate with it stemming from childhood and family or somewhere after there, or where did it stem from for you? Yeah. I mean, I think it stemmed from a, a combination of things um, that we discussed in that chapter. So yeah, sort so childhood family dynamics, absolutely. But also to the environment in which I grew up in. So I grew up in a, in a, my father didn't go to college. And so we went wherever they promoted him and we ended up in a rural place in Pennsylvania and I, we were the only family of color. 
And, um, you know, as a result, I faced a lot of discrimination and that experience that I, that I didn't belong, that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't smart enough, that I wasn't competent enough. So I heard that messaging constantly. And so when I internalized that messaging that I just wasn't capable or smart or, or, you know, was going to make anything of myself. And so I think that really was one of, one of the factors, but yes, yeah, very commonly sort of um, inculcated in very early childhood. You hear people say, oh, it's social media. It's this, it's that. No, it comes from our early childhood experiences and, and family dynamics and, and our surrounding environment. Very much so. I 100% agree um, and have been reparenting myself. And yes, social, I feel like social media exacerbates the problem. Yeah, it triggers it. It right. doesn't cause it. Yeah, yeah it, doesn't, it doesn't help it at all. No, it does not. <laughs> um, but, but definitely, I feel like growing up in a strict family household, when you you learn or maybe you experience that your love when you succeed and and when you fail, then that's a bad thing. Can you talk a little bit? I think you recently did a beautiful, um, it was a reel or um, some type of Instagram post on it. And it really hit home for me. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that can really stunt our growth? Yeah. So when families focus on achievement as the only method of validation, and so you are, you have to do something, achieve something, be something that's impressive in order to be recognized. And when you fail at that, the love is pulled away as like a punishment um, and as sort of a, a way of sort of demonstrating, well, you know, you're not necessarily um, valuable unless you keep achieving. And so those kinds of dynamics really do exacerbate the achievement component of imposter syndrome, where we constantly feel we're on this like rat race of achievement because we're trying to prove we're worthy. Um, and nothing ever feels good enough for ourselves. It never feels like it ever satisfies that feeling that we are worthy. And so that can be really an intense motivator for pursuing an experience of imposter syndrome. Yeah. Oh, I, I know so many people experience that. I know I've experienced that. And I'm, it's taken me a while to like unlearn it, like be okay with even doing nothing and not being yeah. busy all day and practicing being more productive. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, rest is being productive. You're, uh-huh. you're productive and calming down your nervous system. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, speaking of that, what are some of the things that you recommend? when a person is experiencing imposter syndrome and realizes like, wait a minute, they're talking about me here. Like, well, actually, let's start with some of the signs Um, because I think you do a really great job with like calling out, here are some signs for you to uh, recognize if you're experiencing imposter syndrome. Yeah, so imposter syndrome is the experience when you are skilled, credentialed, competent, um, have experience, yet you haven't internalized that. And as a result of not internalizing that, you then feel like you might be exposed as a fraud if you make a mistake or stumble in any way. And so to cover up that fear of perceived fraudulence, you either overwork or self-sabotage. And then when you engage in those behaviors, you typically will get some feedback about whatever you've done. If it's positive, we ignore it. If it has any slight negative focus to it, we hyper-vigilantly focus on the negative, over-functioning to try to correct it and never make that mistake again. So some of the signs can be um, the experience that you feel like a fraud, like you feel incompetent, um, that you overvalue others and undervalue yourself, that you're perfectionistic, especially about your work product or anything that is associated with you. 
um, that you do these overworking behaviors, you overfunction, you over try to prove yourself constantly. Um, you can also engage in some of the hallmarks, which are um, choosing mentors for ex external validation only, um, engaging in experiences of what we call intellectual inauthenticity, which is when we downplay what we know to make others feel comfortable. So there are a lot of different signs. Some people say oftentimes imposter is self-doubt. It is not self-doubt. It is a constellation of experiences that go together. And anybody who's experienced it kind of recognizes more than one thing. They kind of connect to a variety of the pieces of it. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely, I remember when I used to always downplay like, oh, you know, you think you're being humble, but it's it's more so, no, I don't want to feel like I'm better than anyone. Um, so I'm not going to say that that's like a little yes. bit different, you know, and it's from people maybe even saying like, oh, you think you're better than me because da 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 <laughs> in your childhood. And you're like, oh, OK, well, no, I think everyone's great. But uh, can I celebrate my wins? Can I <laughs> exactly. It is so funny because like as I was going through your book, I was like, yep, that 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 and pretty much all of it like you I experienced during during my childhood and and growing up in a in an environment where I was marginalized and can you talk a little bit about like the impact of of kind of dealing with those I guess microaggressions from that yeah. perspective yeah and so um one of the things that I think is really important is that when we experience um these microaggressions, discrimination, other experiences, and we come from marginalized communities, historically marginalized communities, we experience what we call the double impact of imposter syndrome. And so the double impact of imposter syndrome is you're experiencing imposter syndrome internally. You're saying to yourself, well, I'm not good enough. I have to overwork to belong. I, you know, I, have, I have to produce something perfectly in order to feel like it's good enough. And then you have the secondary experience of the world telling you, well, maybe you aren't good enough. Well, maybe you don't belong here. Maybe you're here because of your identity or your skin color or whatever. And so you're getting reinforced externally for the imposter syndrome, which makes it harder to overcome the individual experiences because the reinforcement is telling you, actually, you're right, you are a fraud. And so to overcome the double impact, one of the things that the research shows is one of the things that's super central is community having community along your identity line. Whatever identity you feel marginalized that feels like it's contributing to this double impact is a place where you need a large amount of community so that they can reinforce your, the, your you know, they can value you when you feel like you're being microaggressed. They can actually validate that and also help you to kind of strategically deal with it. A community that really gets it. Um, and so that's really incredibly important because when we have imposter syndrome, we often do things alone. We were right. taught that survival is alone. And actually to overcome this, you can't do it alone. You must do it in community. I love that. And can you share now a couple more things you can do to overcome imposter shit? But community, I'm like, that is like one of my top ones because you need to be affirmed. Yeah. You need to be uplifted. Yes. Um, can you yes. share some more tools that someone can do if they feel like they're experiencing imposter syndrome? Sure. One of the things that's really critically important is to recognize that you're not always in imposter syndrome. There are times where you're not experiencing it and what induces it is a trigger. Mm -hmm. And so some common triggers are like a new job, um, an opportunity to be visible, like highly visible situations, um, a particular type of boss, a boss is hypercritical or perfectionistic. So there are particular triggers that actually induce the imposter syndrome cycle 
and being able to identify that particular trigger and understand, and that's why we talk about the early experiences, because that trigger often comes from our early experiences, it's often correlated in some way. And to be able to neutralize that trigger, to recognize that in this moment, whatever started that in early childhood is not there. And that we have another level of agency and power to deal with it in this moment that we did not have as a child. And so really recognizing the correlation, the connection, and being able to neutralize, identify and then neutralize that trigger is so important so that we can choose different behaviors. So instead of overworking, we can task manage. Instead of dealing with performance anxiety, we can actually meditate or use some mindfulness techniques. Um, instead of you know, not internalizing a positive piece of feedback, we actually can take the compliment, internalize it, be very intentional about how we take that in. So those are some, those are some additional ways. Uh, oftentimes we also talk about the automatic negative thoughts that come into our mind when we're triggered. And so things like, oh, I'm stupid. Oh, I can tell they don't like me. All those kinds of things that you know are coming into our head that are inducing this feeling of not, not necessarily belonging. And really our job, and then one of my favorite quotes is by Amit Ray that says, you are not your thoughts, you are the observer of your thoughts. And so one of this, this idea of like that we don't necessarily have to believe our thought just because we have it. Um, and our job is to examine it and to figure out whether it's useful. And if it's not useful, really thinking about, you know, how do we counter the thought? How do we develop a more reality-based, healthier narrative that actually helps us to move forward or do the thing that we're afraid of? Um, so things like that. And that's why the book is solely based on really tools. I mean, it's really focused on tools and really figuring out how do you use the tools that are based in research to help you move this thing forward. Absolutely, and I love it. It's like I have it here. It's like a workbook um, on your greatness, overcome imposter syndrome, beat self-doubt, and succeed in life. And um, I feel like a lot of us, especially with social media, because you have a part in here about typical professionistic uh, behaviors, a lot of us, we're starting to learn to be more perfectionist because you have all the filters, you have all the, you know, the things that, and you have like just social media in general that a lot of it is about having this perfect lifestyle, right? Or some people will say, fake it till you make it kind of thing. What I your- hate fake it till you make it. <laughs> I know. As, <laughs> as in this area, you, I was like, that's got to be a trigger for her. It's a trigger for me. <laughs> <laughs> how, do you, um, how do you deal with those things with so much pressure and so much education and to do it a different way sometimes? Yeah, and I think, you know, what's so important is to recognize that, you know, oftentimes we think perfectionism is the ideal, that perfectionism, perfectionism really helps us to get, you know, to some ideal place. But with perfectionism, you'll never reach it. Like, it's impossible. I used to have a mentor that says something, it's really outlandish, but it is sort of puts it into context. As you said, perfectionism is death. And I think perfectionism is the death of really opportunity, of progress, of risk-taking. It's the death of a lot of different things. And if you are aiming toward perfection, you're losing so much in the process. The gains are not as good as the, the, the opportunity to actually sit in, in, the, in the learning and the development and the risk-taking and the failure. And I think oftentimes we don't talk about our failures enough. And that failure, especially for imposter syndrome, is, sh- is shameful. 
And I think, you know, many people who succeed have failed many, 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 many times. And that our job is really to allow ourselves to fail in safe zones, to create safety nets and opportunities for ourselves to fail. And because it requires, you know, learning, growing requires risk-taking and, and in any kind of risk-taking, there's an opportunity. It's not going to go well. And to really, to really kind of move toward this idea of like, and the reason I hate fake it to you make it is because it reinforces this notion of that we, we are fake until we make it. And frankly, we are not fake ever. We are, if we can truly sit in who we truly are at all times, like we are our authentic selves and that is good enough in that moment. And as long as you're open to learning in that moment and developing, it's okay to not be hitting the target, hitting the mark, like being the best at anything. Um, I'm so much more focused on like progress, development, learning, growth opportunities than I am perfect, uh, you know, particular outcomes, things like that. Absolutely. And one of my favorite ones to counterbalance that is vulnerability is strength. Mm-hmm. And so being, being sharing your vulnerability, sharing when it's hard, sharing when you yes. struggle, which was definitely hard for me because it's like, oh, people look at you once you're like doing well, people look at you to always be doing well. So can you yeah. talk a little bit about the pressure, um, especially of leaders and high achieving people, which are, you know, from your book, most mostly the people that experience um, imposter syndrome, how do you counterbalance that of standing in your power, but also um, sharing your vulnerability? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important. And I agree with you, like vulnerability is strength. And I, I do also think that that is incredibly important as you recover from imposter syndrome to really learn to appreciate your vulnerabilities, to appreciate your weaknesses, to appreciate your mistakes. And I do think one of the things, especially in leadership, that becomes incredibly important is that, you know, showing vulnerability, showing where you fall, showing where you fail really helps the people that you are leading get to be human. It creates psychological safety in environments where people can then truly be themselves and take risks. And so I think it is so important not only to do it for yourself and your own growth, but to model it for others, model it for our children, model it for the people we work with, for the people who we lead, um, and to really do it honestly and authentically and not to polish it up either, because sometimes we're good at also polishing up our vulnerability, so it looks kind of perfect and all we learn from it. Sometimes we can be in the learning and haven't had the moment of revelation of why the vulnerability was so important yet, and we still have to show it. And so I think that becomes so important is to really learn that this is an incredible strength that you want to actually exercise um, in your recovery and exercise as a leader and, and, and just anybody who's out there doing something needs to do that, I think. I love that. That's definitely a place where I am growing because I'm like, oh, I like, you know, when I'm in it, I like to be introverted and process it myself. And I don't want people's opinion on how I should do this or how I should handle this. And then when I'm through it, I'll share the lesson. But that is something that I literally used to say. And then I was like, well, yeah, you can still share it and people can have their opinion and you can still move forward in the way that you should. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any more tips for someone who feels like, no, I just, it's just so painful um, (laughs) to process, especially in public, which some people do, but some people like myself find it extremely hard. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, especially when we are, like you were saying earlier, like we're high achieving or perfectionistic, the vulnerabilities can be really hard to share um, and to feel like people will still respect you or people still find you valuable. 
But what I have found, and it's very much a part of who I am and who the way that I talk about, you know, imposter syndrome is I often talk about my own struggles because I do think it's so important um, for people to be able to see that you can be successful and can struggle and simultaneously so. And actually, I find that most people find that human and they, they actually find connection in it. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of people connect to my work is that they just, they can relate to, to me and to the work um, that I'm not trying to say this from on high as a psychologist from an Ivy league university. I'm just trying to say it as Lisa, the human who, who clearly also has skills and, and expertise. And I'm not trying to diminish that, but also as a human being in the process of this. And so like, I'm very, <laughs> I'm a busy life. And so like, I make mistakes on my, on my, on my posts all the time. I make typographical errors. I, and I just try to leave them. Um, and when people, I do often get critiques and people will say how I have had people say how it's so unprofessional to post this before it was ready. But I also know the one thing that's important for me is that I get the content out there and I can't make it perfect. I don't have enough time to make it perfect. And if, and it also doesn't send the right message. So like, I think it's really important that I actively just be human and make all kinds of mistakes and take ownership for them and accountability for them. But also too, just to notice that you can still put things out there and make mistakes and it's fine. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I love it. So, so beautiful how you, how you put it and in the book, can you share with me what has been one of the hardest things for you uh, when it comes to really owning your vulnerability? Yeah. I mean, I think when I think the vulnerability itself and the vulnerability hangover. (laughs) So sometimes in the moment you don't mind being vulnerable. And then when it's out there, you're like, Oh, yikes. (laughs) Um, And so like, I think that part is I work, I work on that pretty proactively of once I've shared something and now it's out in the public scape and people are talking about it. I have to really tolerate the vulnerability hangover and really just feel like it's okay. People will learn from it. and I will learn from it. And it's, it's fine. Um, but it does sometimes, it is sometimes hard when you've been out there in a very public way and, and been super vulnerable about something, um, you know, and, and people are talking about it. It's, it's hard. Um, but I, I do actually enjoy how people relate to it and connect to it and really feel a sense of like, um, you spoke for me or I've been there or like, cause you're speaking not only for your, I think I try to remember that you're speaking not only for your own vulnerability, but other people have also been there and it helps them to feel not alone. And also that they will also share it. If you can share it in a public arena, they can share it with their friends or their family or their loved ones. And I think I appreciate the, when people can say to me, I also now shared that because, you know, I felt like I, I felt like I could. And so I think you do it for a purpose and a, and a reason. And I think that, that um, I try to hold on to that when I'm feeling a little raw about it. <laughs> Yay. I love that. I love that. And I'd never even heard that before, but it's definitely real, definitely real, the vulnerability hangover. (laughs) Um, And like you said, we could definitely um, just remember people are sharing it. Do you have any other tips that you use to help you get over that, that vulnerability hangover? Like, oh my gosh, I want to delete that. Cause you'll, you'll see that a lot out there. Might delete this later or like that. Um, do you have any more tips for us and how to deal when we're having those uh, vulnerability hangovers? Yeah, I, I process the heck out of it. So I have, you know, because I have a you know, community around me and I, and I will talk about how embarrassing X was or, you know, I, you know, I remember one time I'm, I'm like, sometimes 
there's a lot going on in my head. So I'm sometimes queen of like, you know, just saying something like just like just coming from, I don't even know where it came from, but I, I one time did this article for, I think it was like refinery 29 and uh, they asked me a question and I, and I was like, I, you just have to boot and rally. And I was, and I was like, Oh, and then afterwards I thought, what is, I don't know what boot and rally is fully. <laughs> I just started <laughs> to say this. I was like, good. But then I ended up researching and I was like, it's, it's awful. It's like vomiting. And then going back to drink again. And I was like, Oh my oh, God. No. <laughs> Always a psychologist. Did I say that? And it got printed in a magazine. Like what is wrong with me? But look, I'm human. And at the time it just came out and it was the wrong thing and it wasn't what I was trying to attend, but I said it, you know? And so I think, you know, really recognizing like we're all going to make mistakes and we're all, and, you know, I thought there would be a big backlash and there wasn't really. And, and, you know, people get that you just kind of misuse a term or, or, and I think you just really want to, in everyday life, you want to remember that, like you misuse a word, you mispronounce this, you did it. It's just human. Um, and to not only tolerate it in ourselves, but to tolerate it in others, like to walk away. Cause part of the perfectionism sometimes is also overcorrecting others. Or even if you don't say it out loud, you'd be like, Oh, look what they did. Blah, blah. And really getting away from those habits because those habits are unconsciously telling ourselves, Oh, when, when you scroll up, somebody else is doing that to you and it's not healthy. So much better to have compassion for them, compassion for yourself, um, it will allow you to make greater mistakes without feeling anyone is judging you. And if they are like, you know, if they're not saying it to your face, you don't need to think about it or know it or anything, you know, and if they are saying it to your face, you know, you really have to, you know, work on staying grounded and, 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 and centered and really, you know, allowing yourself to process it in whatever way you need to, but really not being afraid of just being human, making mistakes, making them publicly. Um, most of them are recoverable. Absolutely. I love that you said, really pay attention when someone is so highly critical of others. They're usually very highly critical of themselves. And that is so true. And that helps me have compassion for people that come off, you know, super critical towards me. Because again, I grew up and then I was like, you know what? You must have grown up in a very critical upbringing and you are that critical to yourself. And that really actually helps me have compassion. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really, it's an important reminder. I think oftentimes we think that they're coming from a place of like judgment, but trust me, if it feels harsh on you, it's 10 times harsher on them. Like what they're doing internally, you can't even imagine. So I think it's good to remind ourselves when we're feeling critical of of other people, like it's not good for our unconscious and what we're telling ourselves about what other people do to us in the moment when we make mistakes. Right. 100%. And so what do you do with your, you know, booming schedule and making all the reels, doing all the social, we talked before you're working on it, but now like, how do you maintain your own mental health with all these things going on? Yeah, well, I am, I'm really conscious of my own mental well-being, and I'm a, like, I'm a religious meditator. I, I meditate like daily and, and, you know, sometimes more than once. Um, I also exercise and I'm really about, because I know that exercise is a very significant piece of my own mental well-being. Um, and so, and I do that. I'm always processing what's going on internally with other people that I trust around me. I made sure, you know, that when I need it, I'm in therapy and, and actively pursuing my, my therapeutic goals. So I'm always really conscious of how I'm taking care of myself. Um, because I know that, you know, with, without someone watching my mental health and most importantly, me watching my mental health and it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't stay in a good place. You have to really be conscious and care for it proactively. So I'm, I'm very 
you know, I'm trying to be very conscious about all those pieces. I love that. It's something that you said, though, I'd never heard before. So I want you to talk. I've heard it from my therapist. She's like, what is your goal for this session? But I never heard someone really speak, speak about processing my therapeutic goals. And so do you have specific goals when it comes to therapy? Um, and can you share those with us? Yeah, typically, I, if I end up, if I end up in sort of a therapy, and I often like think of it as like a therapeutic piece of work. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, like, we don't have to be in therapy forever, but if we're, we're doing a particular piece of work, I come in with a particular set of goals that I really am trying to work on, things that I've been struggling with and I can't sort through myself and I need somebody else to kind of help give me another perspective, a way to kind of push myself or to think about some deeper things that may be going on that I'm not aware of, that I need to be conscious of. So I utilize it like that. And I think one of the things that I have liked about that particular style of working on my own struggles is that... Um, I know when I've reached my goal because I have a very clear goal about what I'm trying to hit. Um, and it doesn't feel like I want five of X of X. You know, it's just usually like a particular type. It's something I'm struggling with interpersonally or intrapersonally. And so I know when I've hit it, when I stop doing whatever it was that kind of got me or, you know, I have whatever reaction sort of calms down that it brought me into the, into the work. And so it really helps me to know when the work is like, and as a therapist, I mean, clearly it's something that I think about for my own clients is like thinking about what are their goals and how are we working toward reaching them? And also, you know, when they're ready to graduate, you know, I don't, typically we call it terminate, but I don't like that word. It has such a finality death kind of connotation to it. I really like the idea of graduation um, that someone's graduating, they've gotten, they've hit the goals they want to hit and like they're ready to kind of move on to their own, you know? Um, and then they come back sometimes and do another piece of work. And so I really like using therapy in that way. And, and, you know, especially in, in communities of color and marginalized communities, we've often used it only in serious emergencies. And I think we have to move away from using it in just serious emergencies and really using it to maintain our mental health and to maintain our well-being and to really process things that have, are getting in the way of living our optimum lives. Like, I really think we have to use it more proactively and with a lot more, with a lot less kind of uh, thinking about it as like crisis only or thinking about it as stigmatized. Like, you know, like it should be just a part of the, your well-being and the way that you take care of your well-being, you know. Ashe, that's so, so beautiful. And I totally agree. And I think that's such a beautiful way for people to look at it. Cause a lot of times people, I need to go to therapy because something happened or blew up or relationship or, or something extreme. But even if it is for that reason, knowing your goals, I feel like that makes it so clear. Like I have one therapist, my best therapist before every session, what is your goal for this session? Like, what do you, I mean, she asked me, it wasn't about like, me asking her, like, what is your goal for me? You know, it's me, me. And she made me be clear on how I wanted to feel and what I wanted to get out of each session. I think that's so powerful because I don't hear a lot of people talking about that. But I think that's what made that therapist the best. And we were very clear and specific. And by the end of the call, each call, 
she would check in with me to see if I was clear on hitting that goal. And I was like, wow, that is just so, so phenomenal. And I think if people can take that, whether their therapist does that or not, and go in with the goal and share it with the therapist, I think therapy, some people, you know, I've, I've heard both. Some people feel like, oh yeah, I've done therapy. It didn't work for me. And some people say get more results. I love it. But I do think if it's more goal oriented, like you shared, you can essentially or possibly get more out of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are some sessions you'll go into and you're like, I don't know what the goal is. And you'll come out of it being like, whoa, or you'll sometimes come out kind of confused or like, but you're always like progressing towards something, you know, hopefully consciously around the, the the goal you're trying to reach. And I think, you know, you're right. Like sometimes, you know, we may come into therapy for the first time in a crisis, but like you said earlier, when we're in a crisis, our nervous systems are like shot. It is not the best time to be taking in information about like, you know, your early childhood and like all of this stuff that may have connected to it. When you are in a state where you're more regulated and you're doing more work that feels like, yes, it's about goals, but it's not about emergent goals. You're able to take in a lot more information. You're able to process in a whole nother way, which is why sometimes therapy can be really helpful when it's not urgent. And so like, not that you don't go in as urgent, you do. But also to remember there are other times you don't need to be in urgent situations to go. Um, Yeah, that's so true. Because I I can share a personal story to where when I went in, I remember saying my goal is just to not feel like crap. And literally the entire session, my therapist had me laughing. And I was like (laughs) laughing and crying at some point and then just (laughs) laughing. And, And she literally took it serious. Like her goal is to get off of this conversation happy. And I I don't think I'd ever experienced that before either, but she was really a match for me. And I think that's also, that's such an incredible thing. Yeah. Yeah. To really find a good fit for you and to write, you know, like when people say therapy didn't work for me, I was like, it's not the right fit. Either the therapist wasn't the right fit or the particular modality wasn't like the kind of type of therapy they were doing wasn't the right fit. And to really keep trying until you find the right fit. I know it can be hard looking for somebody. And especially if you're looking for a therapist of color, it can be really hard. There's so few of us. There's only 5% of therapists um, in, the, in the country that are black. So it's really intense. It's really intense and hard. But there are resources you can use, you know, so there are so many more than once existed to find therapists that are fit, but yeah, fit is so important and to find somebody that you really feel speaks to you and um, whatever that might be. And sometimes you don't know because you've never been and you need to experiment, but I think it's, it's really important. Like, you know, I'm the kind of therapist for me, it's like, the, you know, I like to laugh and cry. I like to have a full range of emotional experience. Like as a, as a therapist, I want to be present for you and in, in whatever. And some therapists are not like that. Some therapists really are really sort of what we call tabula rasa, which is like the blank slate and you can't see what they're feeling. And you might like that. You might actually like somebody not to know what they're feeling and experiencing, but I think really kind of examining what you want for yourself and trying them out, you know, trying someone out for a session and seeing if it's a good fit and then trying somebody else and trying to find who's the good fits. You can have a longer term relationship. I think the longer term relationships are really fabulous where you can go back to someone after you graduate and go back and do a piece of work because they know your history. They know you. It's really that the long-term relationships and therapy are so lovely. I agree. So, so true. What is your favorite part of the book? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't think I've been asked that question. Before. <laughs> um, huh. No, I think for me, like, um, 
when I, I think about writing it and like the, my favorite part of it was probably the most scary part of it, which is in, in some pieces of the book, I talk about my own experience and that was really difficult to put. I've said it out loud, but to see it written on paper and to actually know that it was going to be in somebody's hand, like my own experience is going to be in somebody's hands. When I had kept many of the, the anecdotes and the things that I shared very like close to the vest and not shared them for many years, I felt very ashamed of them um, and very embarrassed that I could have ever done some of the things that I, you know, did. And like, so I think that piece was the pe- my favorite pieces because I found a way to tell my own story and weave it into other people's learning and to really do it in a way that felt like, um, felt like very healing. It felt very much like a time in my life that felt really painful and destructive and awful um, has purpose. And so I think that is probably my favorite pieces of the book. When I look back at it, I'm, I'm proud of myself that I was able to do those things. I love that. And I'm so proud of you too, because it's, <laughs> so, it, it's what really makes the book good is just like hearing your personal story, seeing the examples and also seeing the science behind it and, yeah. and how it, it's, it's not just, you know, airy fairy and just out there. No. It's it's real and people are experiencing, like you said, it's 70% and just to acknowledge it and name it and know people are not alone. And I think anyone listening just to hear like, oh, okay, I'm not alone in how I feel. And these are some ways that I can really pick myself up. I think it's going to be so healing um, for them to see uh, and feel that. Do you have any um, last messages or points you wanted to make just for that person listening saying, you know what? I think I could do this. Do it. (laughs) If if you feel like you want to make a change and you don't want to live in this anymore, like do it. One of the things that I've been most excited about related to the book has been that as social scientists, my husband and I who wrote the book together um, have been, have been taking people through the book, through the, through our, you know, masterclass. And we've been measuring um, through, through validated instruments, their change over the course of the book. And we've seen that now uh, through three cohorts of people that we've taken through the book, we see about a 30% change um, in imposter syndrome scores after completing the book. So we're not terribly surprised. It's nice to have the data because all of the stuff that we have in the book is research backed. It came from research studies. The concept is over 40 years old. So there's 40 years of research that we use to kind of create the book and to be able to see people be able to take a book and get, get that significant of a change out of it feels so exciting. So if you feel ready, just do it. And I will say, while the book is like friendly looking, like it, it's, it's like not very big and it has a very like happy cover, it's tough. And so I won't play games around that. It is tough. You have to go look at some dark corners of your life. But I think one of the things that's really important is that and looking, we're not looking at them just to, 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 to make things hard for you there. We're looking at them purposefully to move you forward. And so like, you know, if you, my husband has a saying, which I, I love. And he, he said to me when I was going through it over and over again, almost like a mantra, like, cause I wasn't, I couldn't take it in, but he says, um, if you work as hard for, for yourself as you do for others, you're going to be unstoppable. And I mm. think that's such a key piece, like work, like you work for other people for yourself and you'll never regret it a day in your life. I love that. I'm definitely going to quote him on that. And I wanted to ask you, how was it uh, writing with your husband? And, and was that challenging? Like, did you guys have a point where you're like, I want to like, not do this together? 
I would say, I would say yes and no. <laughs> um, Richard and I have worked together since we met. Um, and so we have a long history of knowing how to work with each other. And we were also, we were on internship together when we were getting our degrees. And so not only do we know how to like work together, we also know how to clinically work together. We we're supervised together. So we have a very unique kind of experience together. Um, but I would say that it was hard. Um, I think largely because it was, it was wonderful. My, I had, I know my husband really well and he knows me really well. So that, but when someone knows you really well, they call you on your stuff really easily. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm, you know, when I was writing the book, I was experiencing intense feelings of imposter syndrome. Like, well, how, who am I to write this book? And what am I talking about? I still get triggered. Um, and so I engage in a lot of procrastination and my husband is really good at like, like scheduling and being like super on task. And so he was constantly like, when are you going to start working on that chapter? What are you going <laughs> to, and so he's like, I see your imposter syndrome. You need to deal with this as you're dealing with the book. You need to be working on the skills that we're talking about. <laughs> and so that's not very fun, but, but it was actually super helpful. And he really challenged me to like, really let myself shine and that the procrastination was preventing me from doing that, that it was making things very last minute and very kind of, and as a result, I wasn't getting to be my full, like whole self in each chapter that I was writing. And so he really like challenged me to like show up and put everything out there. And so, um, so in that piece, it was wonderful, but it was also hard <laughs> because he's <laughs> no running. He knows every single corner. So <laughs> wow. That's incredible. You have like that built in accountability partner. Like, yeah, yeah, right here. You literally can say whatever. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's incredible. That's incredible to have that type of relationship and also respect that type of relationship, even with this challenges, yeah. but you produce this beautiful book because of it. So <laughs> yeah. guys, thank you so much for leaning in and um, maybe one day I'll, I'll get to meet you both. Yeah, I would love that. We would love yeah. that. <laughs> me too, me too. So any last words before we wrap up? I can literally talk to you all day. But... <laughs> I know, I'm having a fun. I know. I, mean, I think, you know, I think we're recognizing too that, you know, like, like I had just said, imposter syndrome is going to probably, you're probably going to get triggered for it throughout. The idea behind the book is that you will have the tools to deal with those triggers. So I think a, an expectation that it'll be gone forever is probably an unrealistic one, but one where you can turn down the dial so quietly that you can either barely hear it or when you do hear it, you know exactly what to do. And so I think that was the point of the book is like, you know, can we eradicate it? No, it's kind of, it's going to be there but we can make the way that it affects our lives and the behaviors that we choose to engage as a result of the triggers much different. You know, mm. people often ask me like, how has your life changed as a result of, of dealing with your imposter syndrome? And my life's bigger. It's brighter. It's more colorful. I feel less constricted. I feel like I really can make the choices that I want and take risks and try things. Um, and I feel like I'm living the life I always wanted to live, but never let myself dream of. And so I think that's what's possible when you deal with it. That's incredible. That's incredible. And congratulations on living your best life, <laughs> writing this book, working on another one. I just, I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see the new one because I feel like you're giving so many people permission to do the same, to really face their fears, to get vulnerable, to 
call and call it out and acknowledge the imposter syndrome, but not let it run your life. And exactly. I feel like you've done that. Like this is not running my life. I'm calling it out. I'm learning it and I'm teaching it as I go, but I don't have to be perfect to teach what I'm learning and, and what I have a hard time with. And I think that is the message people need to hear so they don't feel like they can't do it. You can feel more emotions than one at one time. You can Absolutely. I'm incredibly um, into this topic and well knowledge on this topic, and I'm still experiencing it myself. And I think that really does help with imposter syndrome and, and knowing that it's okay and you are enough as you are. You're a whole and complete self. Thank you. Yes. For that. You're so welcome. <laughs> uh, well, where can people find your book and get a copy of the book and get some more of what you have to offer? Sure. So the book's available at all major booksellers. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, it's available. Um, it's also available in multiple different types of formats. So the workbook, which I would suggest because there's a lot of exercises in there. But if you like an audio book, um, buy a journal that, to go with it so that you can actually do the exercises and write them out. Um, and also on my um, Instagram um, at Dr. Orbe Austin, I'm pretty active there. And then also, too, I'm active on LinkedIn, uh, so you can follow me there. I'm, I just was named uh, LinkedIn Top Voice in Mental Health, um, so I'm pretty proactive there. Um, and yeah, and so, yeah, and I have, you know, we have the next book coming out. It's called Your Unstoppable Greatness. Um, and so it's really about thinking about how the work that you've done in the first book then can, can translate to how you then interact with the world. And so... I love that. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming on the Get Loved Up podcast. You all, if you all had some revelations and takeaways, please let us know what they are. Tag me, tag Dr. Lisa or Bay Austin and let us know what you loved. And if you haven't left a review yet, please leave a review. Let us know. Did you like it? Did you not like it? How you feeling? And until next time, love yourself, love others and love the world. One day at a time, one breath at a time. Peace and love. I just want to take a moment to say thank you for being part of the Get Loved Up community. I like to share topics and people making a positive impact in the world, and your feedback means the world to me. If you haven't already left a review, please leave a five-star review and let me know what you want to hear more of on the show. I'm here for you, and together we're making the world a better place, one day at a time, one show at a time. Thank you for listening.